Kubernetes community, and welcome to the Pod Control Podcast. Coming back to you again this week. Tyler, how are you, man? How are things going? Uh, unseasonably warm, uh, which I'm not going to complain about. Uh, when it gets into the 70s in uh, February, even if it's only for a day or two, uh, you uh, get get outside and you don't complain about it. And now you, you're uh, you're up further north than me, so it's it's unusual. We're already we're almost we're at that stage uh, in North Carolina where it's almost. I mean, the spring is fully here. Uh, all the pollen is fully here, which I don't love. And uh, I think we get about three more weeks of spring, and then it'll be summer. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, listen. Um, not a lot of sort of news news in terms of like announcements and stuff, but uh, there was there was a piece, uh, sort of a new piece that came out this week um, in terms of the the CNCF put together a the CNCF has had a, a, a working group around serverless um, that's been going on for probably six or eight months now, and they they came out and sort of made some statements and uh, put out some white papers and some guidance and stuff. So we thought today we would. Kind of dig into that, um, see what's in there, um, cover a little bit of, of the serverless community as it relates to, you know, kind of the intersection with Kubernetes and, uh, and kind of dig into there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's definitely a hot topic uh, across the board, not just in the Kubernetes community and the CNCF. But uh, I did appreciate that you know the working group you know took time to sit down and kind of think through these things. And you know sometimes uh, when you get a bunch of people uh, together on a project like that, it can can get down into rat holes. But at the same time, you also uncover a lot of other things. Oh, we hadn't really thought about that before. So I think it's great. Yeah, and and this it seems like a little bit of a different approach. Um, you know, usually. You know, these things sort of start with, hey, here's a here's a project, um, you know, and we've seen this everything from Kubernetes to Prometheus to, to lots of things. Um, you know, it typically starts with a project and then things evolve from it, like people kind of decide if they want to be part of it. This one seemed to be more, um, hey, there are lots of projects going on. Um, you know, do we need to sort of put some guidelines out there? So whether people continue their project or join a different project, like, at least they're going to kind of be going in the same direction. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see where that where that goes. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, this is definitely different. Usually it's, hey, we thought about something, we built the thing, and then let's now talk about the thing. Um, where this is like, hey, let's let's just kind of talk about this conceptually a little bit more and use cases and, and stuff like that. And I think the, the, the real value here is, you know, whether there's always some new buzzword, cloud, machine learning, something like that. And then, you know, there's a piece of it that's the new thing. And then you have existing vendors or people doing things that want to be doing the cool new thing. So they they, they kind of squint a little and see how they can call this thing they were already doing, the new thing. Uh, so, and then people coming to it are really confused. You know, they say, oh, we th- wait, cloud, wait, this is this is just virtualization. What am I missing here? You know, and they get all confused. So I, so I appreciate this as kind of laying out the... When when someone says serverless or FAS or any of these things, like what are what are they really talking about? What does it mean? Um, kind of what are some you know examples and things like that? Right, right. And uh, we put a bunch of stuff in the show notes, not just the the link to the CNCF stuff, but just some other background things that um, we felt like are useful. Um, you know, there there are tons of tons of sort of serverless resources that are out there these days. But uh, try to give you some stuff to to go get started if you're new to the space. Um, I'm going to caveat this, uh, and I hope we never have to do this again, but. Uh, I'm going to caveat the show with, with two statements. Um, number one, um, yes, there are still servers running somewhere underneath a, a serverless environment. So um, hopefully we don't have to say that again. And, uh, and number two, serverless is not necessarily the greatest name in the world for this. Uh, you may also hear it referred to as functions as a service. Uh, there's a running joke in the serverless community. They should have just called it Jeff. Um, 
But uh, so whatever whatever you feel comfortable with, serverless functions as service, FAS, whatever, like it, it's all good. We'll we'll get to we'll get to the, what it, what it really means here uh, throughout the show. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think something like to me, functions as a service is a you know more descriptive, but at the same time, I think you can be pedantic when someone's saying serverless. Like, well, they're really serverless. Like, okay, we, we know we're, we're we're both talking about the same thing here. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I have I have a uh, sticker on my laptop that says there's no serverless. It's just someone else's container. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like the old there's no cloud. It's just somebody else's computer. <laughs> yep. So why don't we start with a little bit of of um, kind of historically why. Did the CNCF take on this, uh, you know, this charter of having kind of a serverless working group? Um, well, I think, I th- you know, I think it really goes back to the the concept is is pretty clearly goes to Amazon. You know, there's some things uh, that you can, you know, you're not sure a couple groups are working on the same thing at the same time. But Amazon with their Lambda service was really the first kind of iteration of serverless or FAS uh, in the market and and saw some initial, you know, a lot of eyebrows raised initially like, oh, what's this? This is this is kind of an interesting approach. Uh, and I think that started to drive a lot of look and then people immediately started building kind of, hey, we I want to I want to build one of those too so that we can run it somewhere else. And and I think that's once, uh, you know, the CNCF started to see the um, you know, started to see this and people are interested in it. So, well, let's figure out what does this mean for, for CNCF and, and getting a group together, a working group together to, to talk about it and think about it. Yeah. And I think the other thing that happened was, um, like you said, you know, it, it's historically all, what always happens is something is out there and then somebody tries to build an open source, either replica or maybe a better mousetrap, whatever it is. Um, and, and they saw some early projects emerge. So like, uh, the, the folks from platform nine had a team that built something called, uh, fission, um, red hat had a team, uh, that w- it was under a project called fabric eight that was called function. Um, uh, the folks who, uh, uh, uh IBM, IBM, OpenWhisk. IBM had open, open whisk. Um, there was a group that got acquired by Bitnami and I apologize for their name, um, that does something called Cubeless. So there was a whole bunch of them. And the, I think the one underlying consistency to them was, you know, they were all trying to build it on top of Kubernetes. And so, you know, the CNCF said, okay, well, this seems like a, is this a Kubernetes service? Do we need to get involved with this? Um, and so, you know, they started breaking down what is this? What does this all mean? So that, that's kind of why you have this serverless working group, which probably is most aligned to Kubernetes. But I think as we dig into this, we'll realize like it's going to have to be also aligned to to some other kind of more data centric things as opposed to just container centric things. Yeah, yeah, I think the uh, you know I think it, it makes sense. Uh, like you said, is when it, when when uh, when we start getting into like what how, what it actually does, how it works, um, that it, that it makes a lot of sense for it to be tied uh, somewhat closely with Kubernetes, but at the same time, uh, also not because of sort of the use. Once you look into the actual use cases, right, right, yeah, and I and I think you know it's it's not the CNCF's place to to dictate to people what they should do right they're a governance group they're not a standards body um but i think there was at least enough people that were saying you know historically we've been through different cycles and so forth it probably isn't in the industry's best interest um you know open community's best interest to to have like 5 or 6 or 10 different implementations and there be no consistency amongst them, right? There's nothing wrong with there being 10 implementations, but if they're all doing them very differently, you lose the value of like community velocity, community volume, all those types of things to help accelerate them and and make them better. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know, the, 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 
the thing that you always get concerned with with any sort of uh, technology situation, especially open source, where it's everyone has slightly different ideas and then builds you know eighty different you know ways to do it, and then there's you know a lot a ton of confusion and and you know a lot of repeated efforts versus kind of moving the whole thing forward. Right, right, and people get their feelings hurt if if their project dies off or or whatever. So, okay, well, cool. So we have a little bit of background about where this thing came from. Why don't we talk about the technology before we div- dive into sort of the white paper and so forth? I'm finding, as I've been studying this for a while, um, serverless, FAS, whatever, kind of has like four different elements that, that you kind of have to consider. Um, and, and I broke them down as there's the thing that executes your function. So there's the sort of the engine that executes your code. Um, there is the, the data sources that are going to either be like the source or the sync of, of interacting with your code. Um, there's going to be you know, is there a developer experience? Like, is there a framework I'm supposed to work with? Is there a UI? And then finally, there's the thing that, that ultimately kind of really gets people excited, which is like, oh, okay, there's the, the quote unquote billing model, which is, you know, only pay per usage. So why don't we, why don't we break those down into sort of individual components? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like we've talked on earlier shows, when when it sounds like sort of black magic and you can't imagine, you know, you can't really imagine what's happening under the covers, it seems, you know, really, you know, crazy and, and esoteric. But but really, you know, when you when you give any, let's, you know, we start with Lambda, right? Because since they were the first, right, you're, you're handing a, a bit of code under a number of supported languages that they support um, to Amazon and then saying here, run this whenever this happens. Right. Uh, so it's, they're generally what we consider event driven programming also where that event could be a schedule. Uh, but more often it's, it's something happened. So someone hit an API endpoint, someone uploaded a file, you know, that is a trigger, an event trigger to run this bit of code. Uh, and really what's happening under the covers is they, they, when you give them that code, they have a, sort of a, a, a predefined little container, if you will, of the stuff needed. So say it's say it's Python, right? They have the, the Python executables and stuff like that. And then you're supplying the code and your dependencies uh, in this in this little kind of uh, packet, little package, and then they uh, execute it and feeding in the data that you know that your event caused and then waiting for the output. And then does whatever that output that you you kind of configured in your system for it to do with the output. And and that's that's really it. Right. Right. And I think, you know, as the as the Kubernetes kind of architects were looking at this, they they would go, okay, well, could you do this today with with vanilla Kubernetes? And there's part of that answer that is yes. Um, You know, you could take some code, put it into a container, make it run um, and and scale it using, you know, the the primitives that are there in Kubernetes. So, you know, kind of auto scaling based on, say, CPU or something. And then I think that the next step, which is the, well, no, you can't, they started looking at, okay, um, you know, do we need more granular scaling uh, characteristics, right? And, and that stuff is, is coming. Um, it's actually, you know, in progress and so forth in Kubernetes. So like, you know, can I scale on CPU? Can I scale on memory? Can I scale on, you know, requests into uh, an individual instance? All those sort of things are, are kind of in progress, right? They're in flight. Um, the next thing becomes, how fast do I have to run that thing, right? So, so an event triggers, like uh, a, f- a table is updated in a database that should trigger this functional code to run. How fast do I have to make that happen? And, and I think that's an area where they said, well, we know how fast we can spin up a container using one of the Kubernetes schedulers, but is that fast enough? 
Um, and that's an area I, I suspect we'll see um, some people either, you know, building some custom schedulers or we'll see a, you know, kind of function scheduler emerge eventually uh, from Kubernetes, um, just because you either have to like build a system that will kind of pre-warm a bunch of containers, like they're already kind of ready to go, or you're going to have to, you know, do some some more advanced kind of scheduling work to make them, you know, much, much faster than they spin up today. Because containers are fast, but maybe they're not fast enough for what certain people need to do at scale. Yeah, when you're measuring the the full uh, runtime of the application in, you know, in seconds, uh, the the spin up time is 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 critically important. And and while Amazon is kind you know kind of tight lipped on the technology underneath Lambda, I mean basically that's what the you know it's a it's a uh, demand based um, container spin up kind of platform which they're doing and they do cache and pre warm uh, based on the usage. So you'll see first runs for your functions will take longer to start than subsequent runs and and, and things like that. And and that's why we even even with some of the projects that are out there like OpenWhisk um, doesn't it's not uh, doing it at the Kubernetes layer, it's doing it a layer above to to make sure that that execution happens basically immediately. Right. Right. Okay. So so that's kind of the the execution. Um, and again, you know, there's like I, I've heard some unusual conversations from people who will say, well, um, you know, th- this all sounds awesome. Maybe we should move all of our applications to this. You know, and th- this is where you get into sort of knowing the implementation. So this is this is not a knock on AWS by any means, but like. There is a limitation on, say, Lambda, for example, um, and this may go away at some point in time, but, you know, the code can only execute for a finite period of time. And, you know, for a while it was like, well, it can, it can execute for no more than like five minutes in a row. And, you know, so when you start to dig into, well, what does my application need to do? You know, especially when people start thinking like, well, we'll just port our applications over to, to functions as a service, like, understand this is this is this is not a which language is it written in it's like what does my application have to do is it actually going to work given the the limitations that you know a, a function as a service imposes on it so that it can be small finite run fast and all those types of things yeah yeah i think that's the uh you know gets it's and this is kind of where I, I push back on the the idea of just like each thing is a higher order abstraction than the last so you know it's it's servers, then it's VMs, then it's containers, then it's PaaS, then from there it's serverless, and and that's just the natural order of things, and things just move up the stack versus sort of different types of abstractions and different use cases, and that's um, you know I think to me you're if you truly took your app and then uh, you know made it run 100% Lambda, it means that you broke it. Every function you have basically in your app is now a separate Lambda function and they're, they're calling each other across and, and things like that. And it gets pretty complicated pretty quick. So there better be some really good uh, return on that. And I think that's why we're seeing people look at sort of like hybrid approaches of, you know, a, a, what I'd call like long running processes running in containers and things like that. And then these short running, very event driven uh, pieces running in something like Lambda. Right, right. Okay. Um, so the next thing that we broke down was saying, um, you know, it's not just executing the code. Um, in most cases, it's almost the more important piece is going to be, you know, what are the, what are the data sources or what are the events that are going to trigger your code? Um, so for example, you, you wrote a, uh, a little function that says when something happens, um, send off a notification, right? So simple, simple action that we, we can all, uh, understand, Let's just let's just walk through like the basics of well what would what would trigger that thing and then does the function actually do the notification or does it have to talk to a notification service like there's going to be multiple inputs and outputs potentially involved with what's going on here. 
Yeah, so so on the input side, it, it's pretty straightforward, right? You're saying whatever platform is you know running your function, it's going to feed some input to you. Um, you know the the name of a file. Uh, you know a for example, like if you're using uh, Amazon using Lambda, would say their API gateway. Someone hits an API endpoint that you know HTTP HTTPS request is passed to the the function started and passed the request contents and saying here this is what you were waiting for go go do your thing and I'll wait for you to come back um, now you can have your code inside that function do things like like post to some other thing read a database you know actually make output that way or at the end usually the the ending result of it is passed out of the function back to whatever ran it and in your setup you told it what to do so like for example lambda you can say return this result back to the api to the person who hit the api endpoint mm-hmm. right so i think the, the the important piece to take away from that is you know as you're looking at these services you know whether you're you know looking at one of the open source projects or you're looking at a service out of the cloud um what's going to ultimately probably be more important as you're evaluating stuff is what data sources, what syncs and sorts, what events um, can it integrate with? Because that's ultimately, right, keep in mind, your function's not running all the time. It's only running on triggers, um, you know, triggers based on some event. And and so you need to be able to say, like, okay, which types of storage can I integrate with? Which data streaming? Which uh, API gateways? Which, you know, notification services? Whatever those might be, am I going to be able to integrate with? And one of the things that I thought was was interesting that came out of this white paper was they referenced this, um, I, th- I think it was kind of an ongoing project that had already been started, but it's something called Cloud Events. Um, and there's a link in the show notes. It's like cloudevents.org. But essentially what they're doing is they're saying, well, let's at least start to define how you uh, explain what these services are, or at least you know, sort of cr- explain what the messaging is going to look like, so we can start to build some standard type of interface that any data source could potentially uh, work with and, and be part of one of these these ecosystems. Yeah, I think that's the uh, that's that's really the value at, at a high level. I think um, of these types of approaches is is not you know a function that runs for thirty seconds. There's really not that much work it can do. Uh, it's really about the inputs and outputs. So, like for example, like I said with Amazon with Lambda, if you their API gateway is a really you know powerful way to have a front end into Lambda functions, and you've seen people build entire APIs using Lambda. Um, you see things with um, you know say with Google Cloud Functions and and using some of their machine learning pieces. Um, I think that's really it's the stuff on each end that are really gonna that really push people to to make those kind of things and and hopefully yeah, like you said try and standardize things especially if all the places or or tooling doesn't they don't offer wherever you're at say you're running an amazon and you really need this one service that google has that that amazon doesn't you know making sure that you can fit that all together gets it starts to get it complicated right right um yeah and you know and i think at the end of the day people are going to start to realize um you know the the idea of serverless the idea of sort of having functional programming is at at some level um, not that different from the concept of having microservices, right? You're you're taking distinct uh, actions or distinct pieces of code. They could be domain driven, whatever it is, um, and you're having to figure out how to stitch those things together. So, you know, serverless ends up becoming maybe um, the next 
stage of, of saying like, hey, how would I break down a monolith? Maybe, but really it's saying, how would I break down a whole bunch of processes? And you're going to have to figure out how do I coordinate between them? What's the order? Does there need to be an order? All those types of things. So, um, and I think that sort of leads us to the next piece of it, which is like, what, what does this developer experience looks like? Like, what are some of the things that are out there that make the developer experience good, bad, indifferent, emerging? Yeah, so so I've had the most time with Lambda of of any of the you know, a little bit with Whisk, um, but mostly with Lambda, and um, I, I think the other ones sort of follow that today. It's it's a rapidly uh, you know rapidly evolving area. <laughs> the way I would best describe it is the Lambda developer experience for like Hello World type applications is uh, awesome and super easy. Anything more advanced than that, it's 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 a real pain in the ass. Yeah. Um. And it gets into like all these little things you run into, uh, like the stuff. I, so I was doing Python on it, and and you run into things like, I had this this Python basically function I built locally, and like okay, well you have to kind of capture up all your Python dependencies because again it's starting and it's running, so you can't basically run like a pip install, um, when it when your function's starting. So you have to supply all those things. So you know, I upload it and it won't run. And I start to look into the details. It's like, oh well, this one you know Python module you're using is compiles when you install it. So you compile it on your Mac, and obviously Amazon's not running Mac, so it needs to be compiled on Amazon Linux, and all these other things. To you know, where get to the point where I was, I built a Jenkins uh, server in Amazon just to take care of all these weird dependency things. Now, I mean, that's it's it's gotten better, um, but those are some of the challenges around around Lambda when it comes to a developer. Right. Right. Well, and, and there's a couple of things that are that are helping to sort of fix this. Um, not necessarily all open source, but like um, there is a uh, a company called Serverless, um, surprisingly, who has something that's <laughs> called the uh, the Serverless Framework, and so they're they're essentially trying to be the front end to a lot of these other things, right? So let us let us be the front end, kind of the UI, if you will, and so forth, um, to lots of different ones, Azure, Lambda, OpenWhisk, and and so forth. So that's something to go take a look at if you're interested. Um, you know, some of the some of the cloud specifics or some of the vendor specifics have their own UI and tooling and so forth. So it's still pretty fragmented as far as the developer experience. Um, you know, there's there's not necessarily like complete language frameworks or sort of middleware around trying to make this. And I think that part of that's because the idea is, uh, you know, there isn't really necessarily a middleware. There's, you know, you you build it all, you wire it all together. So it's still very, very early days in terms of, um, you know, kind of what the developer experience could be. And, 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 you know, your mileage will vary based on how many events and things that you're trying to pull together into either one application or lots of applications. Yeah, the the one other thing that I ran into, which talking to other developers, you know, the first time they run into this, they they kind of scratch their head, and then they realize that, um, you know, sometimes serverless is, is way more complicated, right? It's it's powerful and has this, you know, very wide scale, but can be very very complex. Is uh, if you're you're writing code in in any language, Java, Python, Go, whatever, uh, and you write functions in it, right? You write a monolith and you say, you know, here's my main code, and then like call this function which adds some numbers together, or whatever it does. Um, there's no concept in the programming language of I called this function and it didn't, nothing happened, right? There, there's con, there's I called this function and the function failed for whatever reason. There's error handling and things like that. But the idea of I called and it just never came back, it never ran, 
isn't really a construct because that's not a possibility because it's all in that monolith. Whereas as serverless, that's totally a possibility. And I've had that happen where it's like, this calls this Lambda and it just for whatever reason didn't run, whether there's something crapped out on Amazon side or, or whatever happened. So then there's this extra layer of sort of your code that has to manage the code. So I'm going to send a request to Lambda and if it doesn't come back within, you know, 10 minutes, that means it didn't, you know, something happened. So I need to resend it. And then I also have to check whatever, especially if it's doing some sort of transformation on code or whatever, like, well, let me check to make sure it didn't come back to me. But let me see, did it happen? The thing I wanted it to do because I don't want to run it again if it already did the thing I wanted it to happen. And so it adds this extra layer of sort of management that, that you wouldn't traditionally deal with. And, and this is what we see with, with microservices in general, right. right? Where you say, I take this monolith, I break it up in smaller pieces. Well, what happens if the code that does my, my database activities, you know, adding and removing records and stuff fails, you know, how do I make sure and those types. So you add this extra code that's sort of the glue between the microservices and, and FAS or serverless needs that same glue. Right. Right. And this is where we're seeing, you know, things like distributed tracing and, and people talking about platforms that do observability. And again, they're all built around the idea that um, the thing that, that used to maybe only go to one place could now go to lots of places. You have to figure out what the interdependencies are going to be when you start distributing things around. So, um, again, it, you know, it's always the trade off of like if I want something sort of smaller and simpler, you know, does it ultimately become smaller and simpler or, you know, do I, you know, like I'm always going to need certain amount of parts to make something work. So, and the last thing that, that, uh, everybody kind of gets enamored with, and, and this is, well, this is going to lead into the next question too, is, Oh, uh, serverless is only, you know, build on a per usage basis. Like I'm not paying for any idle time. It's completely pay as you go. And while that's very true in the public cloud implementations, um, if you end up running this anywhere but the public cloud, so you want to build one of these yourself, um, you know, the, the idea of what you're now paying for just becomes a matter of like, how do you build stuff within your own company? Um, and I think there, there's a, there's a misunderstanding there that like, Hey, if I run sort of private serverless, I'm only going to pay for what I use. Well, you know, it's, it's however your company decides to charge you for whatever they they've built. Yeah, I think this I think this has a, a fantastic corollary corollary to the original sort of cloud thing with EC2. Yep, yep. There was two yeah, there was a tech bit and a and a billing bit. The tech bit was, hey, I can call an API and very programmatically get VM spun up, spun down, you know, do all these things in a very API driven way. That's the tech piece. Um, the the billing side was and pay for it by hour per minute uh, you know per day type of thing and this is the same thing to me too whereas a piece of the ser- the serverless piece is like hey it's this infinitely wide scalable short running efficient way to to do this type of code that makes sense in these event driven use cases and then also on the public cloud I'm paying per millisecond kind of uh, kind of thing and and if you do them in house the first bit is still valuable. Um, it's just the second bit isn't. So it's, it's what do you need to, to do the first bit? So, you know, going back to with the cloud was, hey, do I need to run an entire private cloud or do I just need, you know, a virtualization platform that has really good API endpoints? You know, that may have been enough. And I think here it's a similar kind of thing. Like, well, is my, you know, whatever platform I'm using to run apps, whether it's Kube or whatever, like how well does it handle, you know, real wide scale short running applications? Um Hey, I can get that, and there's value to that, but you're not getting that latter value of cost savings because, like you said, you your company's already bought the servers it's running on, the uh, licenses, and and all that other stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. So you know, definitely something to to kind of keep an eye on if uh, you know, depending on where you're gonna where you're gonna run those functions, uh, depending on how you're gonna pay for them and so forth. Okay, so let's dig let's dig without without going into the whole document because the document, um, the the white paper that they put together um, is is pretty long. It's pretty pretty comprehensive. What were any initial thoughts uh, from you in terms of reading it? You know, good or good or bad. Uh, one, I thought it was very thorough, which which was good, and seemed to be kind of try and take his sort of a hands-off approach as possible to kind of give a, a pretty reasonable view of here, you know, versus if you if you work for a company or you're the product manager for Lambda or something like you're gonna be like, this is the best thing ever. It's going to replace everything. Uh, whereas this seemed to take a more, um, you know, kind of more nuanced approach. And I also like seeing that there were uh, some non-vendors um, inv- involved in the process too. Uh, so I think that uh, that I noticed. And then uh, the last thing I would say is I love that they included examples because, you know, people are serverless and this and this. Um, but where they get confused is where they try and apply it to their world. Uh, so by saying, like, here, here's an example of, you know, four or five different areas where you could use, leverage serverless and here's how it would work, I thought was was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think um, kind of the, the breadth of people working on it was good. Um, I, I think the all the examples they use are really helpful. Um, you know, at least it, it allows people to go like, oh, okay, I could do a lot of these things. And they actually included, you know, some actual um, kind of customer case studies and references. They they include, you know, a bunch of pointers to code and stuff. So I thought that was all good. Um, my, my only two knocks on it, um, and they're not, they're not too bad. One of them is, um, you know, there was a part of me that was reading through it and, and looking at all the use cases. And I kind of went, you know, if I remove the word serverless and I just said microservices, could I, you know, in essence say like, well, you could do all these things with microservices as well, you know, in a, some other microservices framework. And I think the answer to a lot of those was yes. Um, you know, with, with certain caveats, like how fast can I spin them up and, and so forth. So I think there's still going to be some confusion in the market about like, okay, is there, is there really a distinction of when I should do something or, you know, do I have to do things a certain way? Um, the other one that, that got me a little bit was, you know, they went back to the kind of standard, um, you know, analyst or NIST thing of saying like, well, this is what FAS does. This is what CAS does. This is what PAS does. And, you know, we've said this before on the show, like, I think those distinctions are, are okay at a super high level. But I think we're beginning to see that, that, that those are becoming really blurred. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Like, if you went and asked people five years ago, like, what is Google, Google App Engine? What is that? They would say, well, that's a platform as a service, right? Developers write code. They don't really have to know what's under the covers. They push the code, and it just runs. And what I'm now seeing is Google is advertising Google App Engine as a serverless platform. And they're saying, well, you're not managing any servers under the covers. You're not having to deal with scalability. Like, yeah, that's, it's serverless too. And, and that's fine. People can say, well, maybe that's too much marketing or under marketing or whatever. But I think there is, there is a, there is a very blurry line between just saying like, well, if all I want to do is write some code, push the code and, uh, you know, and then it runs and it's got these kind of built in scalability inherently, you know, built in scalable things in the platform, you could argue like, that definition could be a FAS, it could be a CAS, it could be a PAS, and there's there's real life implementations where you would say, yeah, I, sure, that definition works. So th- that's another area where I think people are still going to be a little bit confused, having read this white paper. That like, are those definitions still really relevant? 
Yeah, and I think are they really important to your right. point is so if I if I have a, a container that spins up and runs for three minutes or runs for eight minutes, like well the first one's serverless, but the second one that's a regular that's CAS, you know, kind of like well, like does it now we're I mean, I, I think it's important at high level to kind of understand um, and I think that's where I like to focus on sort of like what's the key characteristic yep. that you, you know, that you would, you know, if you, some of these things you're like, they're describing a bike and they're like, well, the frame is this, this long and, and this and that. And, and if you, it's, someone was like, what, you know, give me the quick, it's a bike, it's uh, two wheels. Right. And right, you ride it. Right. You know, kind of thing. And they get you get too into this, like trying to draw, well, that could be a motorcycle, but people know what you mean. Right. And I think to me with serverless, it's, hey, it's, it's, um, Yes, it's it's event driven or you know short running, and it's widely scalable from the standpoint of you know not infinite scale, but like every time that event happens, more of them get spun up. You know, right. the one one job per execution. So like, hey, if if someone every time someone clicks for this thing on our website, it, it kicks off this service function. Well, if a thousand people are clicking at the same time, we're getting a thousand of those things spun up. And yeah. I think that's like the kind of core kind of thing about it. Yeah. 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 So, you know, again, not, not so much a knock on it. I think, you know, it's always good to have some definitions so you get common terminology, but, um, I, I think as an industry and technology, we're, we're kind of evolving past, like you said, is, does it really matter that you, that you define it that way? Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this isn't really covered in the white paper, but, um, it is an area that I know I've seen uh, come up quite a bit is there's this, you know, Everybody kind of focuses on the developer side of, of serverless. They go, oh, it's going to be great for developers. They just write code. They don't have to think about anything. And then there's always a little bit of uh, people that are in the ops side of the world that go, whoa, wait a second. Does this mean my job goes away? And you, and you start to hear the term no ops come up with, with serverless. Um, you know, it's not really covered in the white paper because it, it kind of makes this assumption that like, hey, um, ops is sort of taken care of. Um, or there will be an ops team and they will manage the platform, but let's you don't have to worry about that. Like, give me some sense of like, how much is there still for ops to do? And, and secondarily, is there a, a usage, an ops usage for serverless as opposed to just for application developers? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, one of the things, uh, I forget who said it. I saw into basically ops, ops starts after the code's committed, yeah. like everything after that, you know, ops is involved. So, so even serverless, if you think about, let's say you're a decent sized shop, you now have thousands of lambdas or open whisk event you know driven processes sitting out there that talk to each other something's not working right who's troubleshooting who's figuring out when this one calls this one why it's not happening or why this one's running way more than it normally does and normally we execute a thousand of these a day and we're already executing ten thousand we're not halfway through the day you know the the normal type of stuff um now it may be developers doing more of that work but i think you know every all the time they're spending troubleshooting that stuff is also taking away from you know the the new work that's being done so i think that's i think ops is evolving from you know hugging and 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 taking care of servers they've already evolved to customers that are that are full bloat on the public cloud and turn their data centers off they still have ops people right and then they're managing them and then as as you move even if you move up abstraction layers or use some of these other technologies there's still someone troubleshooting that and you even see that with lambda where it's hey this lambda fired but it didn't make this change in this aurora db and why is this and and we need to you know look through the logs and understand why this is happening i mean those are those are the jobs so it's it's i think it's more if I'm an ops person, I think it's just like it's been been for ops people is um, keep learning new stuff, you know, learn this technology, and and there's there's always going to be a job for you uh, moving up the stack, 
Uh, if you just want to, you know, flip switches on servers, then, you know, it's going to be limited, just like people who used to build servers versus, you know, buying them ready to go from HP or Dell. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's there's two takeaways. Number one, I, I don't think we've we've seen a technology yet that that actually makes no ops a reality. Um, you know, like you said, there's always ops. Ops happens as soon as the application goes into production. Um, maybe now we're calling it SRE. Um, maybe the ops function becomes part of what a dev does, but you know, maybe they don't love doing that. So, um, I, like you said, I would worry less about the, the, the no ops part of it as opposed to the, you know, are, are we applying the right skills? The other thing I thought it was interesting, and there was a kind of a Twitter rant by, um, guy named Darren Shepard, who's uh, over at Rancher Labs and really smart guy and um, has dealt with this a lot. I know some of your your old buddies at Blue Box used to use, um, you know, they would use Lambda or use serverless for operational functions. They would say, look, we have things that happen in our day-to-day activities. Some event will happen and we will kick off a script or we'll kick off a, a you know piece of code to do something. Um, there is distinctly, you know, and if you look around enough on Twitter and, and different places, go to some of the serverless events, like you will see ops people that are using serverless as their way of just doing day-to-day tasks, you know, like think of their tasks as being functions. They write some code, something happens and, and they can automate things, whether it's for like upgrades or monitoring things or, you know, validating that some software is running the right version. Like don't, don't look at serverless as being only a thing for developers. Like there's distinctly um, a lot of use cases where it can be very appropriate for, uh, for ops teams as well. Yeah. I mean, think about the, the, the evolution of ops from, hey, we write bash scripts and, and kickstart scripts to like, hey, actually using a real programming language has some for that stuff has some value. And you get into, you know, people using stuff like writing things in Python and then you get into even stuff like uh, Ansible, which is, you yeah. know, all written in Python and, and you're building these playbooks and everything like that. And because it's programmatically makes a lot more sense than trying to do it, you know, kind of through shell scripts. And I think this fits the kind of the same thing where you're like, um, you know, one of the ones I've seen most commonly on Amazon is using Lambda to pipe uh, CloudWatch logs to a normal logging platform. Because if you've ever used CloudWatch, it's it's terrible. Mm-hmm. So the problem is it's built in. So then you'll see there's lambdas that actually fire on if you know logs are generated in CloudWatch. You know, basically transform them and then dump them into Splunk or you know or Elk or whatever that or whatever they're using. Yeah. 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 And you mentioned Ansible. Um, there's a guy uh, at Red Hat guy who, you know, we, we've, I know I've talked to quite a bit, a guy named Ryan Brown, who has been looking at a lot of, you know, how do you kind of combine Ansible in serverless environments for ops people. So I'll, I'll put a pointer in the show notes to some of the research and stuff that he's been doing and some of the code that he's put together. So for people that are, that are Ansible ops centric people, um, you know, there is a, there is a serverless uh, immediate path for you as well. So we'll put that in the show notes. Well, listen, man, I think we covered a lot of things. Um, you know, folks will, we'll put the link obviously to the white paper in the show notes and lots of other stuff in there, but uh, take a look at it. Um, You know, we didn't even go into any of the serverless kind of frameworks that run on Kubernetes. We'll probably have to do that as a separate show, but uh, it's definitely an area that's got a lot of interest from people. There are still a lot of choices and, you know, I don't know that we have standardization yet, but, but that's okay. That's, that's sort of natural evolution of a market. So any last thoughts? No, I think it's uh, I think it's an evolving space and uh, I think there it definitely has, uh, has its uses. I, you know, personally, I think, uh, kind of the idea that it's going to replace everything else is like most things. And, you know, when those predictions are made are kind of overblown. Um, but I think that has some really uh, slick use cases when you have stuff that fit, fit its model. Yep. Well, cool with that, uh, for Tyler and myself, we're going to wrap it up and folks, we will talk to you next week. <laughs>